My name is Judy and I'm an alcoholic. My miracle of S-O-B-A-T-E began on April the 10th, 1980. Standing behind this curtain or get up or set up back there, I felt like a Baptist about ready to get dunked. Coming up here to this light and the water, I feel like the risen Lord. It's Saturday night, and we're all sober. Thank you, God. When I saw the closed-circuit TV channels, I thought, what are we going to be doing next? Are we going to be picking up our chips at a drive through window? Are we going to be sharing our experience, strength, and hope by car phones out in the parking lot? I guess it's working. I walked by a few rooms a few minutes ago, and it looked like people were having a good time in the rooms, too. In March of 1980, my now ex-mother-in-law and I did a intervention on my now ex-husband. And we sent him to treatment because he needed to do something about his drinking. I went to his family week, and the very first day of family week, I was sitting there tapping my foot, waiting for those counselors to get started. And they were late. They came in and they said, well, does anybody have anything that they want to share? And I said, you bet I do. It's my money. It's my time. I got here on time and you ought to be able to get here on time, too. By Wednesday of that week, they kept me. All of a sudden, somebody was pointing at me and saying, you, you're an alcoholic. And the scary thing about the deal was a sense of relief, a sense of ease and comfort came over me that I've never experienced before. I thought about a story about a guy who was drunk and he was walking down the street on the curb with one foot up and one foot down and going down the street, something like this, and the cop stopped him and And the cop said, you're drunk. And he said, oh, thank God, I thought I was a cripple. (laughs) I don't know what felt good about it, you know, but it felt good. And it felt okay to be in that place with those people because it seemed like that there was a solution. There was people there that hadn't been drinking that day, and they seemed to be relatively okay with it. They kept us indoors for quite a while, and when they first gave us our first pass to go into town, I knew that you weren't supposed to go into town and drink. I knew you weren't supposed to go into town and screw around. And I was following the rules because I was a good girl. Now, I bought 17 pairs of shoes, and when I got back to the treatment center, they weren't too pleased about that. They seemed to be telling me that, that I had... A compulsive personality. And I didn't understand that. We were just there to deal with our drinking. Before I came here today, while I was still in Oklahoma, 
I got a phone call that said, I want you to be aware of the fact that our sign says, Sobiety, on purpose. And back 11 years ago, some students made that sign, and they made a mistake, and we're into so much recovery that we can stand to live with our mistakes. By the time I got here, physically got here, the story I heard was, now it's an Al-Anon that wrote that sign, and she got to rolling on the S-O-B part and forgot the R. Now, for my own, for my own reasons, I came to the decision that these Cajuns were telling me all this stuff ahead of time because they wanted to make sure that I didn't think that they were less than brilliant. Bear in mind, I was met at the New Orleans airport and my picker-upper person said, I'm going to have a sign and it's going to say Cajun. And sure enough, I looked around and there was an upside-down sign. The scary thing was, I could read it. I got out of that treatment center and they said, well, you got to not drink, read the book, go to meetings. So I undertook the first meeting. And it was at a church, which is pretty terrifying. And it was at nighttime, which was helpful. And I sat out in my car, and I sat out in my car, and it got to be about two minutes to eight, and it got to be about one minute to eight, and pretty soon somebody was knocking on my window. And they said, hey, are you going in, or are you going to stay out? And I was terrified. I knew what it was like on the outside, but I didn't know whether I could make it on the inside. This week, I went to a funeral for a person in my home group who didn't continue to make it on the inside. And he's been in the program since 1983, unable to put together more than six months of sobriety. And the last time he got drunk, he ran his truck into a brick wall and broke his neck. And I'm thankful that I'm on the inside and that everybody in this room is on the inside. I know that some people tonight are concerned about AJ, and I hope maybe when we say the Our Father, that we'll all keep in mind our gratitude for being here and not out there, whatever out there is. I made it through my first meeting, and they told me you got to get a sponsor. They said you need to find somebody who's got what you want. And I looked around for several months, and I found the person that had exactly what I wanted. She was about a size nine. She had blonde hair, green eyes, a Datsun 280Z, big house, a husband, and kids. And I asked that woman to be my sponsor. She didn't help me get what she had. And that relationship fulfilled its need. And then I went on. The first thing that was really obvious to me is that in Norman, Oklahoma, Alcoholics Anonymous was falling apart. And there were divisions in groups. And there were people meeting on this side of the town and people meeting on this side of the town. But 
there wasn't any unity. And, and I knew that they needed a spiritual leader and unity. Most of all, they needed some organization. They didn't even have a clubhouse. They met in a room that they rented. They weren't even incorporated. And I saw it as my God-given duty to fix it. So I incorporated Alcoholics Anonymous in Norman, Oklahoma, what is still surviving as the Friendship House, surviving because I got out of it after the first year, and got a clubhouse. And one of the first things that the clubhouse needed was some furniture. And so I went to a mentor's house that had been, oh, you know, sober 35 years, one of those wise people in the program. And on the way to his house, I saw a Salvation Army stand. And at the Salvation Army stand, there was the furniture. We're talking about good alcoholic furniture, couches with the stuffings coming out, chairs with the legs broken. But there it was, exactly what we needed. And I went to my friend's house and I borrowed his pickup truck and I got people with five years of sobriety and ten years of sobriety to come and help me and let's go gather up that furniture and take it to the clubhouse. And that's what we did. And I was so proud of saving Alcoholics Anonymous. About four or five days later, I got a telephone call. And that telephone call, they said, what do you think you're doing? You committed a felony. I said, not, no, not me, a felony? Yep, stealing from the Salvation Army is a felony. And I was amazed. I was mortified. Because I was always lived by the principle, you see it, you want it, you go get it. And maybe that's why I've been in jail for a couple of times, for stealing, because I didn't quite have that principle down that you don't take from others. The next suggestion was, well, maybe maybe you can skip over a few steps right here, right this minute, and make amends to the Salvation Army. And for the next two years, I provided free legal services to the Salvation Army of Norman, Oklahoma. After that experience, I kind of lost my motivation so much for straightening out AA. My first sponsor and I divorced, and... I got my second sponsor, who was a service nut. And I mean, she believed in doing coffee cups, doing chairs, doing ashtrays, never doing anything important. And I was into going to conferences, and I was smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee to beat nothing and staying up late at conferences and going to everything that was within a 100 miles. I was like a sponge and wanting to soak it all up. And, you know, the first time that I heard a speaker in, uh, I think it was Cedar Glen, Texas, it was a, a tugboat person, and he told this story about the tugboats. And, and the punchline of the story was, when everything else fails with these tugboats, it says, return to maker. And I was amazed that people like that could figure out how to live. And I heard... Other speakers, and, and, you know, I just wanted to be there. I wanted to be there so bad I could taste it because I knew I had a lot to say and a lot to do. And that was like ten years ago. 
I went to the Young People's Conference in Tulsa about a month ago, and after the Saturday night speaker, I cried. Because I finally realized that I didn't really want to be up here in the lights. I wanted to be at home and be a wife and a mother. And that's how God operates. When we don't want it anymore, he gives it to us. All my life I'd been wanting a bar because I was tired of being thrown out of places. I was tired of people making me clean up my mess. I worked in a restaurant and waited tables all the time, most of the time that I was drinking. And it's a good profession for a drunk. And there was a restaurant in our hometown, Norman, Oklahoma, where Willie Nelson used to come. And we used to shut the doors and, and do dope and party all night. And it was perfect. And I just knew that I was meant to, meant to have this place. And I never did get it when I was drinking. And then when I got sober, same deal. I knew it was meant to be mine because what I pictured in my mind was in those red script neon lights, it was going to say Judy's place right there on I-35 and everybody drive by and see it. And I still didn't get it. And in about 1982, after those kinds of things were over, God gave me a gift. He gave me a restaurant and a bar. <laughs> and we still own it today. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing because we have drinks on our menu that are entitled Sweet Serenity. And it's made with orange juice. I wanted God to... Remove from me the things that were standing in my way of my usefulness to you and others. And that's the way I read that step. And, of course, I got to choose what it was. And at a Canyon Camp conference in 1982, I went into the chapel and I prayed. And I prayed and I prayed. And I prayed for God to remove fat from me. And I looked up into the window, and the light was shining through this red window, and I, and I knew he'd done it. I just had the feeling. And I walked out of that room and never smoked a cigarette again. <laughs> My second sponsor and I were extremely close. And... God blessed her with a terminal illness, cancer, and I went to the hospital and I watched that woman die. And I watched her on morphine, and I didn't understand. I didn't understand why bad things happen to good people. And I didn't have much of a concept of a higher power. About the closest thing that I could do to a higher power was go out into nature and look at the trees and look at the water and, and realize that there's a whole system of life going on underneath the water. I had been born and raised in a, in a parochial schools in a home where we studied the Bible all the time, and I had rejected that structure and that ritualism when I was about 17 because God's guidelines didn't fit in with my guidelines, and so I changed them. It was traumatic for me to lose her. 
And I felt real hopeless and real lost in this program because I didn't know yet how to form relationships. While I was in treatment, they had me file for a divorce against my ex-spouse. And when I sobered up my first year, you know, they say not to make any major changes in the first year. And yet there I was doing that deal. My third sponsor is the sponsor that I have today. And she lives on approximately $4,000 per month. And she buries her garbage in her yard. And she uh, takes things from restaurants like the sugar packets, you know. And I just, I just couldn't abide by that, you know. And she smokes cigarettes. And I thought she was way too sober to be smoking cigarettes. She ought to be able to give that stuff up. But she had a spiritual life and a, uh, she was just ephemeral, you know. I mean, it's like she, she kind of glided across the floor. And in four years, I never saw the woman get angry except twice. Once at her toilet and once at the Internal Revenue Service. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. And I have been with her since that time. And I eat lunch every Wednesday at my sponsor's house. And pretty much before I do anything, I, I call my sponsor and ask. Still. In about 1983... I guess it was. I, I joined another anonymous program, Overeaters Anonymous. And began to realize that the steps are capable of doing for me that which I cannot at all do for myself. There came a point uh, in time where I thought, I thought this sobriety business was kind of boring. You know, I read in the book, shall we be stupid, boring, and glum? And it seemed like that's the deal. You know, it was, it was uh, monotonous, maybe. Kind of ho-hum, no great big catastrophes anymore were happening in my life, and I didn't understand that. When I got the sponsor that I have today, she took me to a conference, and we went for a walk in the woods and we got to this lake place that had like a waterfall. And it was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And the, the sun was shining on the lake like it was diamonds, you know. And, and pretty soon she started taking off her clothes. And, and I just kind of looked and she got all of her clothes off and she said, I'm going skinny dipping. And I thought, no. You don't do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. But if your sponsor does it, well, then it's okay. You can do it. And I finally learned that, that there were some things that I could do sober that I'd done drunk. And there weren't very many things that I wanted to do sober that I had done drunk. In the book Alcoholics Anonymous on page 11, it says... And Bill Wilson said this, Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible, 
My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. I've had many revisions in my sobiety life. One of those, a big one, is is the uh, issue of financial security. When I got sober, I was single, and I had been supported by my husband up until that time, and working was kind of a fun thing to do, you know, not a necessary thing, but a fun thing to do. And the first conference that I went to, I had one pair of stockings, and I had to take those stockings off and and twist the runners around so that they were on the inside of the legs, so that nobody could see that I had runners. I spent a lot of time while I was drinking stealing, because I couldn't understand how come I couldn't have it too. Even after I got sober in the restaurant business that I was talking to you about, I stole from my partners. And pretty soon there gets to be this twisting and turning in in my gut. And when I talked to my sponsor about it, she said, what you do when those things happen is you make amends. And I went to my partners and and I told them what I'd done. And and I just knew that they were going to bless me and keep me and say, oh, how great you are because you have told the truth. And we think it's wonderful. And they did say all that stuff, and they also said, you're fired. And I lost half of my income. And I couldn't understand the principle of not taking from other people. When I got to AA, I'd judge other people. You know, I mean, I'd I'd walk into the meetings and I'd have to examine their clothes. And did they have on the right kind of shoes? Did they have on the right kind of clothes? Was their hair parted on the right side of the face? Who were they looking at too much? Who did they leave the meeting with? Who did they come to the meeting with? And I didn't do those kind of things. And I spent five years, the first five years of my sobriety, celibate. They said not to get in a relationship for a year and... and, um, I couldn't handle anything for the first five years. And a part of that had to do with the the spiritual healing that it took uh, dealing with my sex life while I was drinking. I have learned that for me, when I judge another human being, it's a surefire guarantee that within 24 to 36 hours, I'm going to be doing whatever I judge them about. Because in my fifth year of sobriety, as sane as I could possibly be, I had an affair with a married minister. And that wasn't anywhere in the books. And it wasn't anywhere in the steps. Now, you know, we all try to look good on the outside. But it's what we're doing behind those closed doors and up here in this thing and down here in this thing that counts. And step four for me meant, am I able to live in a glass house? You know, the way I've got to judge my behavior is whether or not, if you all, every one of you knew exactly what I was doing, would it be okay? I always perceived that heaven was going to be a time when we'd all be there and we'd get to know everything that everybody had done. And I was looking forward to understanding and seeing everything that Liz Taylor ever done. 
My heaven on this earth today is letting you know everything that I've ever done. And the book talks about we've got to be totally honest, totally honest with one person in our lives. And when my gut got to grinding about that kind of behavior, I called my sponsor before she left town for a trip, a five-minute deal, and I said, oh, have a good trip, and by the way, I'm having an affair with... And she said, what? And I said, well, I've been sleeping with... And then she left for our trip. And when she got back, she said... You know, we're going to sit down and talk. And she sat down and she said, I prayed. I prayed about you. And I had a vision. And my Lord and I were walking down the path. And you were straggling behind. And I was, I kept on telling the Lord, come on, she's got to come on. She's got to come on. And he said, no, she doesn't. She'll come at her own pace, at her own time. And my sponsor said to me, I can't watch you do this. It's either me or him. And I chose him. There are points when it is impossible to be in this program and be sober and be doing stuff that I couldn't abide by in my own heart. And before this time, you see, I had, I had made this decision, choosing to believe what I wanted to believe in, and, and that was, I believe that God made intercourse as a sacrament, and he intended it to be with one other person, the person to whom you were married. Now, I didn't have those kind of beliefs back when I was drinking, and I acquired them. I developed them on my own. They weren't stuffed down my throat. That's what I chose to believe because because it worked for me. And in the sobriety and in the celibacy period, I believed that I had been restored, restored to my virginity. And the behavior, I guess, that I was into was... um, in conflict, in conflict with my beliefs. And again, the miracle of sobriety is God does for me what I couldn't do for myself because I couldn't stop that. I could not stop that relationship. And yet, I did. That was approximately five years ago. And last Thursday, I took uh, my fifth step another fifth step um, over that deal because I know that for me in sobriety I can't be doing the same stuff that I was doing before it's it's got to be got to be different page 153 of Alcoholics Anonymous the practical answer is that since these things have happened among us They can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, we are sure that they will come. The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. It was a most humbling experience for me to go on my knees to my sponsor 
and beg her to take me back and to understand what judgment does to my soul. When I was in that treatment center, I met face to face the God of truth, the God that says we are powerless over alcohol, powerless over persons, places and things. And I was at that point willing to to come clean, you know, to to share with you, to be honest with somebody. And it was about um, maybe eight to ten years of sobriety before I realized that there's more there than just the God of truth, that there is also a God of love. And I didn't understand, I didn't know the meaning of the word love. I knew a lot about lust, but I knew nothing about love and compassion. I had a reputation. I've been practicing law for 16 years, and I got into law for power, and I got into law for money. And it provides both of those. I had a reputation as a bitch with balls. I had a reputation as a barracuda. And I loved it. I loved it. People walk in my office and they'd say, how many did you beat last week? And I'd tell them. You know, we kept score up on the board. Winning and losing. And that was the whole deal. The whole deal was winning and hopefully not losing. About a month ago... A uh, woman came in my office, and she said that she uh, wanted a divorce and that she wanted to keep the house. And I said, well, now we've got to look at why you want to keep the house. You know, I mean, it costs $800 a month and $300 a month for your utilities, and you only make $700 a month. And I don't think it's logical that you keep your house. He can afford to make the house payment. Let's give it to him. And she said, you don't understand. I want to keep my house. And I said, now look, you go home tonight and you write down on a sheet of paper why it is exactly that you want to keep your house. And you come back and you tell me tomorrow. And the next day that woman came in and, and she had with her pictures of her house in the trees, in the woods with snow. And she had pictures of her house in the springtime with flowers. And she had written two pages about how she, when she came home from work at 5 o'clock in the evening and she drove down that lane with trees and the squirrels came out and the chipmunks ran around and the, and the acorns were falling and the leaves were glistening, that she felt close to her God and close to her Creator. And I had tears in my eyes and I said, okay, we'll keep the house. About two weeks ago, I had some clients come in my office, and they were just ranting and raving, and they were carrying on, and they were complaining. They were complaining about me. You're not tough anymore. You're not hard anymore. In fact, you're too much like a counselor. You're not out there trying to win. You're trying to see what's good for us. And after my fragile ego got over the complaints, I thought, all right. Somebody is telling me I have some compassion. And I'd much rather have compassion than balls.
I went into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous one day at noon, and I was crazed. I was crazed with with oppression and depression. And, and they asked me to chair the meeting. You know, they think I'm always together. And I did, and I opened it up, and I started crying. You know, just started crying. And I couldn't get anything done, couldn't say anything, couldn't do anything. And finally, a little old girl over at the side, she spoke up, and she said her name was so-and-so, and and she said, I just want you to know that I went to to Judy's office about a year ago, and, and she told me that I might have a drinking problem. And she said, I ought to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't get a divorce, but I've got 28 days of sobriety. And that's what I needed that day. That's what I needed that day. When I got here, uh, Friday, I guess it was, there was a, a lady in a pink shirt that was, had tears just welling up in her eyes. And she said, I think I want a drink. And I understood that. I understood that. Because I've had those feelings. I've had the times when I drive home from work on a Friday and I just bawl, I cry, because, God, I'm tired of working. God, I'm tired of being a grown-up. I'm tired of being responsible. They expect sober people to do so much. I'm tired of taking care of the kids. I'm tired of supporting my family. Who's going to give me mine? Where's my mother? And I got home and I walked in the house and my husband looked at me and he said, I think I'll go fix dinner. And I was crying and our three-year-old came over and he said, Mama, do you need to go to the hospital? I said, no, no, it's, it's not that kind of deal. It isn't the kind of deal that you can fix at a hospital. It's my feelings. My feelings hurt. And I'm sad. And he said, I'll, t- I'll take care of it. And he walked away and I laid down on the futon, this pad that we have in our living room, and and he came back with some talcum powder, some baby powder, and he lifted up my shirt, and he sprinkled talcum powder on my belly, and he rubbed it, and he said, there, it's okay. (laughs) My sponsor and I used to go everywhere together, everywhere together. And we got caught in a snowstorm in um, Arkansas, I think, when we were heading toward Alabama to see my folks where where they lived. And uh, we'd spent about two days, the axle on the car broke, you know, and spent about two days in this motel. And all we had was the 12 and 12. And it was probably the most intense step study work I've ever done. And I got so tired of her. You know, sometimes they just get into lecture mode and you kind of click them off and wonder, when, when are they going to stop talking? And when we got in the car and finally got going, you know, I turned around and I looked at that woman and I loved her. And I knew what the word love meant. Because I cared more for her about that day than I had the day before. And I didn't know I didn't know those things, didn't know those things before. After I'd I'd been through my my deal at about five years of sobriety, long about on six or seven years of sobriety, and it was 
obvious to me that, that I needed a mate and, um, you know, it, it got pretty bad. I mean, the whole time, any time a guy'd walk in the AA meeting, I'd start checking out his shoes, checking out his shirt, and I'd wonder, is this the one? Come on, God, is this the one? And and pretty soon I'd reached a point where I'd drive down the street and I'd see a guy in the yellow VW and I'd think, that's the one. We're going to have a wreck. And he's going to ask me to marry him and we're going to be happy and live in a white picket fence house and have a bunch of kids and be happy forever. And I couldn't get a, a date. And the kind of dates that I did get would be the, I dated one guy for three years and he stood me up every Halloween. And I'd never understood the deal. I made a list of all the guys that I knew. And I wrote down what was good about them in columns and what was bad about them. You know, and it became apparent to me that I was going to have to ask one of those guys to get married. And the one that had the most potential lived in Washington, D.C. And I thought, well, that's okay. You know, we'll probably get along pretty good if he stays there and I stay here and we can kind of like go to conferences together, you know. I didn't know much about relationships. The only relationship I'd ever had was with my sponsor. The only feeling relationship. I had a 12-year-old son, while I, who's 12 years old now. And my relationship with him stemmed from a lot of guilt and a lot of remorse. When, he was, when I was pregnant with him... I was still doing drugs, doing a lot of cocaine, a lot of crystal methadrine, and drinking a lot. And he weighed three pounds, four ounces when he was born, and he spent 30 days in the hospital. And I had an utter disregard for human life. When I finally was able to hold that child and to listen to him, When he said to me, Mama, you're not paying attention. I want you to look at me when you talk to me. It was such a healing. Such a healing. I've gotten a lot of dignity out of this program. And there wasn't much dignity being in the Los Angeles jail in a padded cell naked. And there wasn't much dignity laying face down in the gutter in the mud up in strawberry fields at at some kind of rock concert. A lot of my dignity has come from from the eighth and ninth steps in this program. And when my sponsor had me do the eighth and ninth steps, she had me start in the eighth step with last week and write down everybody that I had injured. And go to last month and go to last year and go to two years ago. And become willing to make amends to those people. And I think, I don't know, six or seven years sober, we started dealing with those amends. And uh, I had stolen books from the University of Oklahoma Law Library. And they were ten years old. And my sponsor believes in pretty direct amends. And for that, I am truly grateful today. At the time, so-so. I went to the OU library and returned to them money, which was the best that I could do at the time. But the facing 
direct, eyeball to eyeball of the librarian and explaining to them, I stole your books 10 years ago and here's the money to replace them. And if there's anything else that you'd like for me to do to make this relationship whole, I'm willing to do that. While I worked at a state hospital as an aide, I stole drugs from the hospital and did the drugs that the crazies were supposed to be doing. And I thought, well, this one's going to be a piece of cake. We're just going to have to send a little contribution, right, over to the state hospital. Not so. Our state hospital in Norman has an AA meeting every Saturday morning. And for two years, I went to that AA meeting. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot from those people. Because there were people there that said, I deserve more than to live like a dog. And I hadn't known that, had not known that. I was involved in a hit-and-run automobile accident when I was drinking, and I left the scene of the accident with injury, which is a felony. I was in a blackout. I took the car. I hid the car. I had it detagged and depainted and sold in Texas. And because of my education and status in the community, I knew how to carry that off without ever getting caught. There's a seven-year statute of limitations for a crime in the state of Oklahoma. That means that if you can get by with it for seven years, then they can't charge you with it. And long about the fifth or sixth year after my incident, I started getting one of those gut aches, you know. And every time I'd drive by that intersection, I'd start getting nervous. And I talked to my sponsor about it, and she suggested that I find out the facts, what really went on. And so I hired a private investigator that had worked for me some in the office before. And I told him a client of mine, a friend, had this accident. And I'd like for you to find out when it was, who it was, how much the people were injured, how much it cost them, and the whole deal. And he said he would. And he produced for me one of the most immaculate, beautiful files I've ever seen. It was more information than I ever wanted to know in my whole life. Three of the four people that were involved in the other car had gone to the hospital that night, and their car had been totaled. And there was $14,000 worth of damage done. And I was petrified. Because I read that step to say, except when to do so would injure them or others. And the or others was me. I was afraid of losing my license to practice law. I was afraid of being in jail. I was afraid of being charged with a crime. I held on to the fact that if I couldn't practice law, I couldn't support my son. So God didn't intend me to go to these people. Not at all. God intended for me to make a contribution to the basket at church. I pictured the woman who was at the time that I made my amends about 62, and I just knew that if I went to her, that she was going to be sitting in a little rocking chair, and that she was going to say, you scum, why did you bring this up now? And that she was going to beat me with a newspaper. And that she was going to have a heart attack and die. And so I shouldn't make those amends. It was truly going to be difficult on her. 
It took me about a year to come to in my own stomach um, exactly what was supposed to happen. And I chose to write her a letter. And in the letter I said, my name is Judy. And by the way that I live to choose today, I am coming forward to acknowledge to you that I'm the person that that caused your automobile accident six years ago. And I'm sorry that I did that. And I would like to make you financially whole and personally whole. And I'd like for you to call me so that I can do that. And I prayed day in and day out after that on my knees. And and this woman called. And she said, I don't understand this. I don't understand what you say about how you live today. I have no earthly idea why, after all these years, you came forward. But, you know, my grandson has a problem with drinking. And it is so much faith and hope for me that if you can stay sober and if you can come forward, that maybe he can do that, too. And I want you to know that if there's ever anything I can do for you, I want you to call me. God gave me such a sense of dignity. There is a sense of rightness, you know, and it doesn't just affect me and that woman. It affects each and every person in the whole world. Alcoholics Anonymous, page 57. What is this but a miracle of healing? In 1988, that private investigator came into my office one day and he said, Hi, I just stopped by to tell you I'm sober. And I looked at him and I said, I never knew you were drunk. (laughs) said, I know. I went to treatment a couple months ago. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And being the good-spirited, charitable person that I am, I knew a new person in the program. you got to take him to a couple of meetings. So I took him by the hand and took him to a couple of meetings. and, And come New Year's Eve, I pretty much needed a date, and they were kind of scarce, and so took him out on New Year's Eve. And he came back to the house that night, and and we stayed there, and we talked until 3 o'clock in the morning, and and my 12-year-old just just loved him, just thought he was great. And I thought he was really pretty boring. He was quiet. He was shy. Mild-mannered, a gentleman, treated me like a lady, and I thought, this is the most boring fellow I've ever seen. And then I told my sponsor about him, you know, and my sponsor said, well, Judy, you know, frankly, it's just the ones that excite you haven't been working out too good. 
So maybe you better look at this thing a little more closely, you know? Open-mindedness. Contempt prior to investigation. Keep an open mind. And by February, I had another one of those experiences from the inside, from the gut, and I don't know where it came from, but we were sitting in this on a rock in a stream in Eureka Springs or someplace in Arkansas, and it was just like that feeling that I had with my sponsor. I felt like I wanted to be with this guy, to be with him alone, and not to date anybody else. And I'd never had that feeling before. See, I... Even when I was married, I had to date two or three. I mean, you had to have one for playing racquetball and one for going to church with and one for doing this with. I mean, it was never a one-on-one deal before ever. And I didn't know what to do with those feelings. And I thought, I'm going to tell this guy this, you know, and he's going to laugh. And I told him that and he didn't laugh, you know, and he said, I feel the same way. And it was safe, it was secure, and I was just dumbfounded, you know. And pretty soon he he asked me to marry him, and I thought, wow, I didn't even have to do this. This is great. And then we started talking about the wedding, and I thought, this is awful. You know, he didn't belong to the right church. Of course, what did that matter? I didn't belong to the church either. Hadn't been to church since I was 17. He wanted a quiet wedding, just two or three people in the woods. And I wanted to invite everybody I ever knew. There's something about, you know, the fifth step where we share it with another human being. And it's like this, this experience of love that I was having. And I wanted the whole world to know it. And above all else, above all else, I wanted to get married in a white wedding gown. I ended up in a bathroom with the lights out, sobbing on the floor. And I thought, this isn't going to work. You know, if we can't even decide how to get married together, how the hell can we live together? He was so gracious and so gentlemanly that he he let me have my way, you know, and we got married in a church. So much tradition, so much ritual, and I love tradition and ritual today. I love it. It gives me a sense of roots and a sense of grounding. Marriage has been very difficult for me. (laughs) Any relationships are difficult. He moved into my house, and I very graciously let him have 10 square inches on the bathroom sink, one-fourth of the closet, and it still didn't work. You know, it still didn't work. I mean, he didn't put the toilet paper on the rolls right. He didn't squeeze the toothpaste tubes right. He folded towels up in eighths. And you know they're supposed to be folded in fourths. He washed the dishes with a Brilla pad before you even put them in the dishwasher. He didn't clean the table off right after the meal. He cleaned up the dishes at 10 o'clock at night. And I thought, this is crazy. This isn't going to work at all. That deal of the guy in Washington, looking better and better. 
And I thought, well, Judy, what are you going to do? You know, this guy's got to know he gets on your nerves. He's just got to know it. And I sat him down and I said, now, look, we've got to have a talk. And I mean, this is a serious talk. I want your full attention because there's some things going on that you need to know about. And he said, yeah, I know. Could I just have two minutes of your time before you get started? And then I promise you I'll listen to everything you've got to say. And I said, nope, I want to go first. And he said, please, just just 30 seconds. I said, "Okay, 30 seconds. And he said, Judy, you're not doing what I want you to when you when I want you to. And I thought, well, son of a gun, how did he know? He knew that that's what was going on. His shoes would be in the middle of the floor. Now, you know, my stuff may be out, but it wasn't in the middle of the floor. It's neat on over at the side. But his shoes would be in the middle of the floor, and I go to the bathroom a lot, and I trip over his shoes, you know. And the laundry basket, have you ever noticed that, men? They can't hit the laundry basket. It ends up all around the laundry basket, but never in the laundry basket. And I said, you know, where? Where in the big book does it tell us how do we do these things? How do we live with other people? How do we have these relationships that the Eighth Step talks about? Forming more perfect relationships? And I told my God... This isn't going to happen. You know, something's got to happen. And God said, I know, and it will. And I went home the next day, and, and, and uh, when I got up the next morning, there were the shoes. And I thought, wow, a man lives here. Not only that, but he's got big feet. And it's a good-looking guy, and isn't it wonderful that he leaves his shoes in the middle of the floor? And that's what happens. What happens is my attitude changes. And my little prayer is, you know, change no circumstance in my life, change me. And that's what the deal is. The deal is my attitude Because I learned what sex was about and that sex was supposed to happen within a marriage, we wrote our own marriage vows, and, and they talked about fidelity. And um, we also signed a prenuptial agreement before we got married. And, you know, it's kind of intimidating for a street person to marry an attorney. And I provided him with a 20-page prenuptial agreement and said, here, sign this. <laughs> it's my stuff. And you're coming into this marriage with a car, and let's make this perfectly clear. And he took the, you know, it's kind of like dogs on fire hydrants, you know, they've got to mark every one. And that's the way lawyers are with contracts, they've got to mark a little bit on it, and he made his mark on it. And the provision that he wanted to put in our contract was, this is so embarrassing, that if I was unfaithful, a $20,000 bounty would be paid to him immediately. <laughs> and I thought, God, where'd this guy come from? <laughs> he got what he wanted. And the day after we signed the prenuptial agreement, I realized that, you know, it's not about things. It's not about things. It's about relationships, relationships with people and relationships with God. 
And I was free of the burden of those things. And I transferred deeds and stock and all this other junk, you know, paperwork, paperwork, paperwork. But it was a free and voluntary act, and it was sure. It was sure. I knew deep down in my heart then what love was. And I know the kind of experience that that um, fathers have for their children and mothers have for their children. And I knew the kind of experience that God has for me. You know, this is the kind of deal he gives us each other so that we know, so that we know how he feels about us. I wanted to have... Um, a child by this man. And when I was drinking, I had had an abortion. And it was no big deal at the time. That's what you do, you know, blow and go. And early on in my sobriety, I had uh, felt bad about the abortion. And I had chosen to write the child a letter. And I knew in my heart that it was a female child and that the child's name was Amy. And in order to make my amends to this child, I wrote a letter and I told her, I want to be your mother and I want you to be my child. And I want to make up for terminating your life. And when I got married and I we got pregnant twice and I had two miscarriages. And I was pained because I believed that God was punishing me for the miscarriage, uh, for the abortion, that the miscarriages were punishments. And so I somehow internalized that um, that I was unfit to procreate my own kind. And we decided to adopt And I called a bunch of people that I knew and I said, we want a kid. And within several weeks, somebody called and said, there's this woman that doesn't want her child. And within several days, I was calling my husband from the courthouse and I said, come on down here. And he came down to the courthouse and I said, go get some diapers. And he said, what's going on? I said, this is our baby. And that's the three-year-old that we have today. The three-year-old meets regularly with his natural mother and his natural grandparents. And it is so wonderful. It is what is called an open adoption. And there are just more people there to love that child. And it's beautiful. I got pregnant again. And we were in church one Sunday and it was a a John the Baptist feast. And it talked about it talked about that while you were in my womb, I knew your name. And, and talked about when Elizabeth named John. And, and I knew then that this child in my womb was Amy. And that this was a little girl. And about five months later, I had a little girl. And it was a, a very difficult C-section pregnancy and delivery. And I weighed 275 pounds when I delivered her. And I had a prolapsed cord. And it was a mess. But she is such a blessing, and she is the opportunity for the rebirth and the forgiveness. And what is this but a miracle of healing? Page 133, Alcoholics Anonymous. 
God has wrought miracles among us. Thank you very much.